Amen. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn them to Titus. Looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is, also if you are a BG kid, you are dismissed at this moment. Does that count as me remembering? If I see all the kids walking out, no, it doesn't count, no. I still said it. Okay, here we go. This is the Word of God. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of God. Let's go to him now and ask for his blessing upon it. Father, thank you for your word. We believe this is your inerrant, inspired, sufficient word this morning for us as a church. We humbly submit to it now, and I pray that you can feed our souls with it. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. This is an awesome text to preach right after Pastor Appreciation Month. I want to personally thank you for spe- specifically whoever organized all that. Um, I don't know who it was to this day, but I got a message or an email or a card every day for 31 days. Um, and it was really meaningful, truly humbling. These past, I don't know how long I've been here, feels like a lot longer, but seven months um, has been an, an enormous blessing to me. I'm so happy to be here, and uh, I hope you're happy that I'm here too still. Uh, you know, I just had, uh, I had lunch with uh, Aaron a couple weeks ago and just realized Aaron's only had one pastor his entire life. Uh, and just thinking, man, that's a big transition for people. It's not just a transition for me, but it's a transition for you guys as well. So I just wanted to thank you for your patience with me and, uh, you know, being so supportive and encouraging. Now, what I've experienced here um, in Pastor Appreciation Month is not um, how people normally view their pastors. Uh, We live in an age where pastors are not that respected anymore. Inside or outside the church, really, uh, pastors are known as lazy, um, perverts, self-centered, egotistical, abusive, political pundits, charlatans, irrelevant, weird, all right? Pastors don't have a great name in our culture. But in our mission to glorify God by making disciples, one of the most, if not the most important thing, is to support biblically qualified pastors who are dedicated to the proclamation of the Word of God. Now, you might hear this passage, you might have read it and said, 
okay, great, what, what am I going to get out of this sermon today? I'm not an elder, I don't want to be an elder. But here's the good news, okay? I just had somebody last week come up to me after the sermon and said, hey, you stepped on my toes, okay? You stepped on my toes last week with this sermon. And so this sermon is a message for me to step on my own toes, okay? This is a message about pastors. So I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. It's been a tough week studying this passage, okay? And so you guys get to listen in. Um, we have two points today, the appointing of elders and the qualifications of elders. Now, I don't want you to check out because as I said, this is one of the most important things to glorify God by, by making disciples. And it's so important to the health and future of this church. And I want to say you're responsible to uphold this standard. Okay, this is your responsibility as well to uphold this. So here we go. The appointing of elders and the qualifications of elders. We see the appointing of elders in verse 5. That says, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. First, now we see in verse 5... Titus's mission and the reason why Paul was left in Crete. There was more work to be done. There was unfinished business. That's what he says here. You might put what remained into order. And I think what that remained into order is, is explained in the rest of it. And point elders in every town as I directed you. That's what Titus is called to do. Uh, a leadership lesson here at the very get-go is that Paul didn't feel like he had to be the one who did everything. Do you see that? Paul didn't say, all right, we got to... We've got to install elders in every church. I guess I'm going to go do it. But no, he entrusts Titus to do this work. Um, that's why he says in verse 4, as I directed you. Directed kind of is, you know, sounds like advice, but this is not the, the sense here. This is extremely strong language. This is an apostolic command. Titus was commanded. He was directed to appoint elders in every town. Just as Paul was entrusted by the command of God in verse 3 to preach the word, Titus is entrusted by the command of the apostle to appoint elders in every town. Okay, appoint elders in every town. That is the work. That's why Titus was left in Crete. That's what needs to be put in, um, put what remained into order, to appoint elders in every town. This word elder is the equivalent of the word pastor. Okay, so we use the word pastor all the time. We're used to that. Elder just seems weird to us, right? But that's what that word means. There's two offices in the New Testament church. There's elders and there's deacons. But in the New Testament, there are several interchangeable words for this word elder or pastor. We see it in verse, um, you know, right there it says, Appoint elders, verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Then we see in verse 7 it says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Right there he uses it in an interchangeable way. We see it, we're going to look at 1 Timothy here in a bit. But 1 Timothy 3, another passage for qualifications for elders. He says, verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. He says all the same things about an overseer. These aren't two different positions, but they are... The same thing, Paul just says them in different ways. And then in Ephesians 4.11, Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So the word pastor comes from translating that word shepherd into Latin and then translating it into English. 
Does that make sense? So that's where pastor comes from. So we have all these words, shepherd, overseer, elder, pastor, and all those are different words to describe the same office. They're completely interchangeable. So in this sermon, I'm going to say elder, I'm going to say pastor, shepherd. It all means that same thing. Does that make sense? So as I said last week, there's around 20 cities in this island of Crete. And this shows us that Paul and Titus must have had an extremely successful evangelistic mission. There must have been baptized believers in multiple towns that needed pastors. You see that? So I don't know how many there were. Let's say 15. So Titus had to go around to 15 towns and install pastors in all these churches. Now notice how I said that. The sense here is in, in Titus is that each town should have multiple appointed elders. The word elders here is in the plural. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Not appoint a pastor in every town, but appoint pastors in every town. There is a consistent biblical picture of a plurality of elders. Not just one pastor with all the authority and responsibility, but a group. Uh, we see if you'll turn to Acts 14. In Acts 14, we see a picture here. Um, starting in verse 21, where it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see the picture as well in Acts 20, 17. Now from Miletius, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. We see it in James 5, 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Um, Philippians 1, 1. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, in the plural, and deacons. So what I think the biblical picture shows us is it shouldn't just be one pastor running the show. I mean, we've seen that in our culture go wrong, have we not? It shouldn't just be one pastor who's expected to fulfill every need that a church has. Hopefully you know by now I, 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 I'm not adequate to that task. The biblical model is for several pastors to be working together to oversee, shepherd, lead, and take care of the church. That's what's called here. Now, here's what's crucial. That can't just be anyone because you might hear that and say okay obviously Matt definitely needs some help who wants to help him let's sign him up whoever just signs their name on the board let's 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 put him on this elder board or whatever no as important as it is to have elders to have pastors it has to be the right kind of person that leads us to our second point the qualification of elders that's what we see in verses six through nine now, before we start in the qualifications, I have some qualifications for the qualifications. Here's what I want to say. We are in danger of making two errors when looking at these that actually lead to the same problem. The first error is to make them so strict that no one could ever possibly meet them. The second error is to make so many excuses about them and, and soften them so much that anybody could possibly meet them. 
And both of those, excuse, both of those errors lead us to ignoring this passage. If it's too hard, we're going to say, well, who could actually meet that? And if it's too easy, it's going to be like, well, what's the point of even talking about this? Anybody can do it. So, in this situation, we have to take the middle ground, okay? Where these standards are really high, but they're able to be met by saved sinners. Okay? They, they really have to be met. And if they're going to be met, these standards have to be treated as general standards. The elder, the pastor, has to be generally disciplined. He has to be generally humble, um, generally not greedy. His life has to be marked by these qualities. If the standard is, as we're going to look, that I, as your pastor, can never slip into arrogance or never lose my temper or never be undisciplined, all right, we're in trouble. That can't be the standard, but my life, the pastor's life and trajectory and norm has to be marked by these qualities. I also think we have to ask uh, the qualification of these qualifications is that these are about who the man presently is. I don't think the question can be, have you ever been arrogant? (laughs) Have you always been upright? Have you always been a lover of good? Because our theology dictates that we were born sinners, hating God and good, and only have become upright and holy due to the saving grace of God found in Jesus Christ. So I think we have to look at these and say, is this who you are now? Obviously, we can't deal with who you were before as a, as a lost person or, or 10, 15, 20 years ago or anything like that. Okay, so look, let's look at what they said. That's enough qualifications. Verse 6, if anyone is. Now, he says if anyone is, and then if you, if you examine the text carefully, he starts listing all these things, and then he never, he never closes off the sentence. He never says if anyone is and then fills that in. Um, so the, the point is if anyone is, up to this standard, you can appoint them as elder. I also want to say this isn't an exhaustive list um, of everything a pastor should be or should do. I mean, it never mentions prayer, for instance. But So if this isn't everything, um, and you could, you could find something else, but w- what Titus is doing, he has this list of basic, non-negotiable standards. And as he goes from church to church, he can say, okay, here's the type of man I'm looking for. He meets all these. Okay, now let's proceed with wisdom and see if, I can, if he'd be a good, good fit to appoint as elder. Does that make sense? So obviously it doesn't address every situation, but here's what he says. Here are the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, this means blameless. means to be without accusation. means there's no questions about this person's character. This word obviously can't mean perfect or sinless. Because only Christ alone can meet that standard of sinless. But to be above reproach is to mean that there are no charges against you. That no one can really say anything bad about your life. That they can look through this list of Titus chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 and say, Yeah, this is generally what their life looks like. He really is marked by these things. This qualification being above reproach is extremely important because Paul insists on it first... But then he repeats it again in verse 7. For an overseer must be above reproach. There should be absolutely no questions about a pastor's integrity, about his walk with the Lord. This shows us that the position of pastor is not a place to compromise. It's not a place to say, well, let's give it a shot. Does that make sense? This is not the saying, well, i got some questions about him, but let's roll the dice. 
No, it's got to be absolutely above board, no questions about his integrity or character. Now, where does this show itself first? In their family life. That's why it mentions if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Literally, in the Greek, one woman man. An elder, a pastor, must be a one-woman man. First of all, an elder, a pastor, must be a man. And this is what the Bible says. This is not to say that women aren't extremely important in the church or have extremely important ministry to do, but the office, and let me also say the function of pastor, is limited to men by Scripture. That's what it says. It says an elder is the husband of one wife. Now, the reason why I said office and function is because some want to make a distinction between these two things. Is that you don't, you, you don't have to have the office of pastor to perform the function of pastor. And so we can have, we can have women, you know, we're not going to call her pastor, but she can, she can preach and she can do everything a pastor does. No. Um, I think that, how do I put it here? I want to be exact. Uh, I don't have the office of policeman, but I get to do the function of policeman. See, that, that wouldn't fly, right? Like, I'm going to do everything a policeman does, even though I don't have the office of policeman. No, the office and the function go together. That's what that means, okay? We're in a cultural moment today that wants to bend or break this standard, but faithfulness to Scripture demands that we uphold this qualification. Okay, the elder, the pastor, the pastors are supposed to be husbands of one wife. Besides that controversy, uh, there's also controversy about the other part, one woman. What does that mean, right? I'm going to uh, cover this more tomorrow. I meant to mention this in the announcements, but me and Paul are releasing a short podcast every Monday morning just talking about the sermon a little bit more. This isn't for us to spread the news to the world, really, but it's for you guys to help kind of talk about the sermon. I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow, but I just want to say I I agree with John MacArthur here um, when he says that the issue is not the candidate's marital status, but his moral sexual behavior, one woman man. The issue here is the pastor, the elder candidate, must be sexually faithful. And the reason why I make that distinction is because you can be married to one woman and not be a one woman man. You can be a single man and still be morally sexually pure. The issue here is that the elder must be sexually pure. And I think he's just talking in in a general, most of the time, the elder candidates are going to have a wife and they're going to have kids. And so he talks in those general categories. But the issue here is sexual purity. And Paul lists this first after above reproach because often um, this is going to be the main battleground of temptation for the elder candidate. He's going to be tempted to not be above reproach when it comes to the faithfulness of his wife, to being faithful to his wife. So that's why it's extremely important to insist upon elders who are one women men, completely faithful to his wife. Next thing it says above reproach is that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, so what I'm about to do here, I do not like to do. Okay, I really hate to do this. But I do not agree with the English Standard Version's translation of this word believers here. 
And our translations are so faithful, so good, so wonderful. I don't want to sow any doubt in them whatsoever in you. But this word right here, I, I would disagree with. Um, this word believers is the word pistos, which can mean faithful, reliable, trustworthy, believing. Okay, it can, it can has that range of meanings. It can mean faithful. It can also mean um, believing. It can mean trustworthy. So much so in verse 9, we're going to talk about this here in a second, where it says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. That's the same word, pistos, right there. Translated as trustworthy. Okay? Even in my English Standard Version Bible, which I love, I hope I don't get a message from the translators there at ESV, there's a footnote that even says, if you look at the bottom of mine, it says, or um, are faithful. So they recognize it, and I would go with the footnote here over what they put in the main one. Uh, this is the word used in the older King James Version. So this isn't like some new thing I'm coming up with. This is what the King James says, and also it's what the, the newer Christian Standard Bible says. It uses the word faithful. I think this is a much better translation than the word believers here. Why do I believe it? Number one, it doesn't make much theological sense that a qualification for being a pastor is for all your children to be Christians because that is something completely out of the pastor's control. We know that we can't, I can't control what Madeline's going to do. I, I like I'm preaching this now because obviously like I'm not defending myself over Madeline not being a believer or anything like that. But you know, like I can't control that. I can be faithful, I can do everything I can, but there, I, I'm out of, I'm, I can't make her believe in Jesus. Okay? But for your children to be faithful which is what I'm suggesting this should be translated as, is something that can be in your control. And it makes way more sense for two contextual reasons. Number one, um, or number two, I guess, look at how Paul continues the thought here. Um, his children are believers, and, and here's how he explains it, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Debauchery is this idea of drunkenness, partying, things like that. And insubordination is absolute rebellion, not obeying your parents and rejecting their authority. So I think those two examples flow way better from the idea of being faithful than they do believing. It doesn't say, you know, uh, children need to be believing and going to Sunday school and reading their Bibles every day. It says they need to be faithful and not debaucherous, that's word, and not insubordinate. Then also, if you, if you flip over to, the, to our parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, very similar passage, so I think it's helpful. Same author, same subject. Um, starting in verse 4, he says, He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he not care for God's church. So in 1 Timothy, the idea is you need to keep, you need to keep your children in line because if you can't control your children, how are you going to control church? And so I think that's why it's much more appropriate in Titus 1 for it to be translated, children are faithful. So what this would mean is that an elder must have his house kept in order, that his kids are under his authority. When they're, when they're living at home, they should be obedient and submissive to his leadership. Okay, so an uh, elder candidate is supposed to be above reproach in his family life, but not only that, but in his character. That's what we see in verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. There's that idea of being above reproach again, but I love this picture of a pastor being God's steward. This is a great 
picture of what it means to be a pastor, especially right after that title overseer, because overseer has this connotation of strong, authoritarian, I'm, I'm overseeing you guys or something like that. But then it says, hey, by the way, you don't own this church. A steward is someone who um, is given temporary authority over something by the true owner. So I do not own Beach Grove Baptist Church. I'm a steward of Beach Grove Baptist Church. God owns this church. And he's temporarily given to me the responsibility to manage and oversee it. This is God's church. This is Jesus' church. Now this is a lot of responsibility and authority to be an elder, to be a pastor. But ultimately, I'm responsible to God. I answer to God. That's why I have to be above reproach. That's why these standards are so high because this isn't just you know, Matt's church where things are going to go Matt's way. No, this is God's church where he rules this church by the authority of his word. Okay, and so he lists five sins in verse 7 that pastors much, must be above reproach about. Number one, we see this, uh, he must be, he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, and greedy for gain. Arrogance just means to be all about yourself, to be puffed up, to be proud. The opposite of that would be to be humble. Quick-tempered means to be inclined to anger, to be short-fused, to just blow off the handle. The opposite of that would be patient. Uh, to, to be a drunkard means to be someone who gets drunk. The opposite of that would be sober. The word violent here can also have the sense of being a bully, which I think is important to sit on for just a second, you know, that... This, this is a strong temptation in ministry today to be a bully to people, to, to, to push people around to get your way. That's not the way pastors should be. This can happen, by the way, um, in person and online. You can, you, there's pastors who can be bullies online. Um, the opposite of this would be to be gentle. The next one's greedy for gain. Specifically, this means to be greedy for money, to be in ministry just for the paycheck, trying to get rich. And the opposite of that would be to be sacrificial and selfless. All these sins he lists, these five sins, are sins of self. Pride, anger, desire for drink and wealth and dominance. And these are completely opposite to someone who is supposed to be God's steward. Loving God and loving others. But, this is very important here, the elder, the pastor, can't just be not bad. <laughs> okay? It's like, well, I mean, he's, he's not so violent and he's, he, you know, he's not quick-tempered, let's put them in. No. There also has to be this positive pursuit. And that's what we see next um, in verse 8, where he lists these six positive things. There's more positive things than negative things. He, uh, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are the marks of a qualified pastor. Hospitable literally means kindness to strangers, to be welcoming, to be open to people. A lover of good means to love God, to love His Word, to love His way of life, to love His church, to love righteousness, to love love, to be a lover of good. To be self-controlled means to have power over yourself, to have power over your desires, your actions. You aren't just flying off the handle. You aren't just you know, led by your desires, but you can control yourself. To be upright means to be one who lives in accordance with God's law, to follow and live in God's way. To be holy means to be devout, pious, 
pleasing to God. This is similar to the godliness which accords with the knowledge of the truth. The pastor should, should have that quality. He should, be, he should live a holy life. And then finally, disciplined, which is the ability to intentionally limit yourself so that you can pursue the things that really matter, which is obviously similar to self-control. Think about Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 25-27, which says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's what a pastor should be disciplined after the things of God. Now, how do most churches characterize the pastor that they're looking for, the pastor that they want? We normally think when it comes to pastor, we think of things like talent, charisma, leadership ability, personality, good looks. I mean, all the things you guys just happened to find. That was, that was too quick of a laugh. But we see in the text that it's not what Paul's concerned about. For Paul, the most important thing is the pastor's character, his integrity, his piety, his godliness. That's what Paul's looking for in a pastor. That, that's what it means to be qualified. Now, there's one more qualification and this is different than character. This is a theological conviction and perhaps a discipline um, that leads to two actions. And that's what we see in verse 9 where it says, He must, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must Hold firm to the word of God. So far we've talked about what an elder should be. Now we're talking about what an elder should do. What the passion of his life should be. Notice it says trustworthy word. This is the word as taught from the apostles. Just like we're receiving it today as we read from Titus. This apostolic letter. And it's trustworthy because it's the word of God. And it's the word from a God who verse 2 never Lies. This is the inerrant truth of Scripture. This is the full canon. All 66 books of the Old and New Testament. This is the trustworthy word he's talking about. And the pastors are called to grab onto this and refuse to let go. To be absolutely committed to the truth of Scripture. A couple of years ago, I was whitewater rafting down the Ocoee. And I'm not big into to water. Okay, I'll get in, but I'm not the biggest water guy. And I definitely did not want to fall in those rapids. And so I'm, as I'm going down that river, which is beautiful, by the way, I recommend it. I, I had some white knuckles holding on to those handles on that boat. No matter everybody else could fall in, I'm not going to fall in. You understand? Like, I am not falling in. And I didn't because I was holding on with all I got. And that's the picture here. You have to hold firm as a pastor to the truth of Scripture. White knuckled. The elder's job is to know the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to know sound doctrine, to be devoted to the truth that accords with godliness and to hold on to it firm with everything he's got so that he can do two things. He does that first, and then he has the ability after holding firm to do two things. First one, able so that, see that he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word is taught, so that, here's the purpose, so that he may, 
be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Uh, if you see the footnote there, sound means healthy. So we talk about being a healthy church, a sound church. Not, not sick, not weak, but sound, solid, true, biblical doctrine. My job is to hold firm to the trustworthy word so much so that I can teach you healthy, strong, true, biblical doctrine. The elder, the pastor, has to lead the way in knowledge so that the Bible can be known, that sound doctrine upheld. It's the pastor's job to put the truth of Scripture into the minds of the people. But not only that, it can't just be a positive ministry, but it also has to be a negative ministry in a sense in the second role and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We'll see this in our next passage. He, he kind of goes into that in this um, 10 through um, 16. But the pastor can't just teach positive truth. The elder must have the knowledge of the Scripture well enough to rebuke those who are teaching falsehood against the sound doctrine. This is so needed, is it not? I mean, false teaching abounds in the church, outside the church. The pastor's job is to rebuke teaching that contradicts sound doctrine. Which means that the elder needs knowledge and boldness. So we see the two responsibilities of the pastor. To teach healthy doctrine and to rebuke unhealthy doctrine. In conclusion, how can you apply this message? How can you apply this text today? Number one, this list should be what you expect and demand from your pastors. Whether I'm here, I'm dead and gone, Chad's here, dead and gone, whatever. Like this is, this is what you should demand and expect. Don't settle on this. Don't look the other way. You know, don't, don't get afraid of consequences. Like this is what you should expect from your pastors. Hold this high standard. That's how this church will remain healthy and get healthier is if you absolutely insist on this. Number two, pray for your pastors. Pray for this to be true. Pray for, pray for more pastors who can, who can continue to do this work. Number three, the unique thing about this list, if you, I don't know if you notice this or not, but it, it's, it's really not that unique. I mean, what expectation have we talked about for me this morning that isn't also an expectation for you as a Christian. Uh, when it comes to being faithful to your spouse, being above reproach, being humble and patient and sober and gentle and selfless. I mean, this isn't just for me, it's for you too. So Christian, even this morning, why don't you look at this list and ask where God's word is demanding for you to repent and pursue obedience. Maybe you're not faithful to your wife. Maybe you are filled with greed. Maybe you are a drunkard. Maybe you, you're not a lover of good. Maybe you're not hospitable. God's word's calling you to repent, I believe. But there's a popular mindset today that's just like, hey, you know, your pastor's just like you. And that's definitely true in a sense. I mean, you guys have probably figured that out by now. I'm not some sort of special person. But I think the purpose of this passage is to show that the pastor is called to lead the way in Christian character. I'm not called to do anything special, but I believe this passage is calling me to do all the ordinary things in a special way. Think about 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example 
in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And to be honest with you, that's a staggering thought. It's been kind of intimidating to look at this list all week. And to take this list seriously, as I believe I'm called to do, is a very humbling thing. It's a hard thing. So look at this. This is what my life is supposed to look like. And since I'm supposed to do all the ordinary things in a special way, let me say publicly that Jesus is my only hope of meeting these qualifications. Jesus has fulfilled every single one of these perfectly in a way that I never could. Jesus has died on the cross in my place, bearing the wrath for every single time I have or will fall short of these standards. Jesus has resurrected from the dead and is Lord of this church. And He meets all these qualifications still perfectly today. He is the great shepherd. He is the true pastor and elder of this church. He is the true overseer of our souls. And ultimately still, even now through the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the source of empowering grace, enabling me to meet these qualifications. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is our only hope of ever meeting this. I invite you to put your hope in that as well. Father, in the name of Jesus. These qualifications. It's a high standard, God, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you can enable the pastors here, me and Chad, to meet them. God, I pray for a church that possesses these high standards, expects them, prays for them. God, I pray that in a very uh, unique way, and a surprising way, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, in this time that you convict people of sin, that there's somebody here who is, uh, you know, a drunkard. There's somebody here who's quick-tempered. There's somebody here who isn't self-controlled. And I pray in the most surprising passage, you can convict them of their sin and lead them to you, Jesus. Lead them to faith in you, realizing that, you know, people will go to hell for not being upright, holy, and disciplined. And the only way to receive forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you use this passage and um, through your power, God, that we're trusting in and your grace, that you make it true of this church more and more and more so. God, protect us from evil. Protect me from temptation. Protect, um, protect us from false doctrine. God, help us hold firm to the trustworthy word. God, I pray... Um, you know, we, we talked about being a healthy church, and now we're in this. I mean, this is what a healthy church looks like, God. And I pray that you can, through your power, make it so. Make it so, Lord. All for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.